Welcome to the Not Bane podcast, your weekly rundown of UK politics from a black millennial view. Every Sunday, join Corey and me, Bay, your resident centre lefty, as we look at Parliament, the headlines and stories from across the pond and the diaspora. Welcome to a new season of Not Bane podcast. We're going to jump straight into it. Parliament is sitting and we're going to start off with PMQs. Corey's going to give us his regular rundown. It's going to be short and sweet because he says that he's had enough of hitting all the MPs bloviate week after week after week. So he's going to keep it trim and give us the most interesting tidbits. We'll see what happens. Listen, it's not quite true. I'm not, no, no, no. You're making me sound like I'm some sort of lazy on the job. All right. It's not, that's not it. All right. But yes, this season, going to take a slightly different format. I am not going to do some blow, 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 blow by blow rundown of PMQs every week because, yes, most of the time it is highly uninspiring. However, this week, this week, this week, this week, I actually, I really like this week because this week, Bojo was off in America, so whenever the Prime Minister is not around, the his deputy and the opposing party's deputy take to the take to their their feet. And so this week we had Dominic Raab, the newly demoted deputy prime minister. Um a lot has happened over the summer, and we are not going to obviously yeah. recap everything that's happened over the summer. But one thing that I happened. I think we should recap. Okay, well, we can recap this. Wait, uh, let's there... do like a bonus episode. Let's do a bonus episode where we recap stuff. We can do that. Summer, but not? in terms of recapping, um, the uh, the cabinet was reshuffled. Um, yes, it was. Which was only a couple of weeks ago now. And various Ooh. ministers were moved around, including... I think it's now... important to talk about Dominic Raab. You're going to talk about him as Deputy Prime Minister. Tell them what his brief was before and why you think he was moved. I mean, I was about to do that. That was about... That's what... I was literally about to describe what I, I started. You're welcome for the idea. Dominic Grab, yes, uh, he was foreign secretary, um, and he's he's now been demoted to uh, deputy prime minister, um, which is a demotion because deputy prime minister basically means nothing. Um, it's just a glorified title. Uh, a lot of the time, we don't actually have a designated deputy prime minister because it is that much of a meaningless position. And foreign secretary is obviously so much more important. But yes, he was demoted, obviously, because he fumbled uh, everything that happened when the troops were withdrawn from Afghanistan uh, last month. Everybody now knows that he was famously, he was in in his, his resort in Crete when he should have been making phone calls to make sure that British personnel, both civilian and military, were safely evacuated from Afghanistan. So as a result of that, he was one of the many casualties of the reshuffle. And he, uh, so he he's now Deputy Prime Minister. So therefore, he was standing in for the Prime Minister this week at Prime Minister's Questions. And opposite him was our Ange, our Ange, I love Ange, Angela Rayner, Rayner, because that's how we say it in Manchester, Rayner, not Rayner, Rayner. Loved uh, it. This is all interesting. Oh my gosh, great. Loved it. So Angela anyway. Rayner is a, <laughs> Angela Rayner, who is the deputy leader of the Labour Party, who is from the greatest city on earth, Manchester. She was opposite Dominic, and I thought she was amazing. Not just because I am biased, because she's from the greatest city on earth, and so am I. But she was she was great. <clears throat> she showed more passion than Starmer has shown from that dispatch, well, opposite the dispatch box in 18 months. She was direct. She was witty. <clears throat> she was incisive. On my notes, I have it written here, brava, exclamation mark. Angela Rayner. Mr. 
Speaker, maybe he should go back to his sun lounger and let me take over. Because the truth is, the truth is, Mr Speaker, they were warned about the problems that we faced and the energy crisis that we faced. And there we have it, absolutely nothing to help the people up and down the country who are working themselves to the ground and still struggling to make ends meet. Um, she was straight in. She went straight in saying commiserations to the Prime Minister. He's made zero progress on his trade deal. Of course, we were supposed to get this tra great trade deal, right? With America and every other country in the world two days after Brexit. Anyway, we don't have that trade deal. Um, there was no progress made on that trade deal as a result of the Prime Minister going to America. And so she went in straight on that. Listen, basically, she tore Dominic Grab's singlet. And Dominic Grab is a pound shot Boris Johnson when it comes to Prime Minister's questions. He was out of his league. Um, like, see, the thing is, like Johnson, he's a one-trick pony. Same, same responses, same glib responses to every question, even when it's not relevant to the questions he asked. But he just does it with even less finesse than Johnson. Uh, it was, it was really sad to see. So I, I want to see Rayner against Johnson. That would be a good match. That would be a good match. Um, I think she'd do far better than Starmer based on this one outing that I've seen her this week. Um, she also attacked him on the universal credits cut and linked it to, and she also, what was great was, so she was asking about, obviously there's this cut now, uh, universal the universal credit uplift of 20 pounds, which was brought in as a result of the pandemic is now being taken away from people. And she linked that to, again, to this whole scandal with Dominic Grab when he went over to Crete and when he was on holiday. <clears throat> so one example, she, she was like, okay, so how many hours would somebody on £18,000 a year, for example, a travel agent, how many extra hours would they have to work to make up for the UC cut? And she made a great point about that, <clears throat> um, you know, really pushing him on trying to get him to commit to reverse the universal credit cut. Obviously, it's not going to happen, um, but I thought she did really well. She loved it. I thought at a certain point she did enjoy it a little too much. She was she started grinning at her own jokes. But then in hindsight, I was thinking, do you know what? That's probably that. I mean, you can, you'll know better than me. And maybe you can jump in on this um, to, to give your opinion on this. I, I, I was thinking, after, after I was kind of doing that mental criticism of her in my head, I then thought, hmm, do you know what? Maybe she's just doing it to kind of offset, you know, I, I guess as a woman in public life, especially when you're on the attack, you probably see, you know, the tropes about being angry and mm -hmm. red tete, all of those tropes. And I was wondering, maybe she's just doing that to try and like soften that blow of that critique that would come. I don't know. I mean, I, yeah, do you but, think that's a, yeah, is that you could say that, but also Boris Johnson laughs at his own jokes and tells them too. Mm. Yeah, fair news. If he doesn't laugh, like he and if he doesn't laugh, he definitely pauses for laughter, you know, and finds himself quite hilarious. I mean, he he get he opened his speech at the UN talking about uh, Kermit the Frog. So, oh really? Maybe it's just maybe it's just stylistic choice. And then Angela. he and then he he tried to make a joke about well we're going to talk about the Alcus trade de well not trade deal the Alcus defense pact. But he tried uh, he he pushed back a bit on that with a bit of French in a week, which I thought was pretty bad too. And I guess that was him maybe trying to be funny as well. Everything he does is trying to be funny. Uh, so he's cut his hair, so that's good at least. Thankfully. For the first story of our newly minted season, my co-host is going to tell us about a recent resignation from the Labour front bench. First of all, yeah. What have I said to you about being normal? Yeah. I'm very that? normal. All right, that's me being newly sedate. Minted. Newly, newly minted. minted. It's a newly minted season. 
Are we not on season two? Is it not newly <laughs> minted? Are things are things you. that are new not often called newly minted? Allow me, please. No, who says that? I do. Can you talk about the story? Yeah. Thank you. Anyway, so as Corey said, we're going to talk about the resignation of Marsha D. Cordova, who was the last black woman uh, in the front bench for the Labour Party and the only black woman on the front bench for um, Keir Starmer's leadership of the Labour Party. And she stood down. There's been a lot of rumours about why she stood down. There's been, you know, um, that her speech wasn't long enough, that she was given, the speech time that she was given at Labour Conference wasn't long enough. There's been the stuff about how Starmer's front bench and how Starmer's cabinet is dealing with racial inequality, both in the party and how they're approaching it as on a wider policy level. There's also been talks about trans rights and there's also been talks about personal reasons. Um, I, I know we actually, Corey, I know we did talk about saying that we were not going to bring talk about Kemi this episode. We were going to move it, wait till next episode. But I thought considering they're both equalities ministers, it's actually Kemi, really I don't know who Kemi is. Who's Kemi? Kemi Badenoch, the uh, um, equalities minister for um, the Conservative and Unionist Party, the current party in government. She has been under fire recently as private WhatsApp messages have been leaked where she's talked about not really been interested or caring that much about homophobia and also has talked about how she doesn't see there being any issue with colonialism. It was just the, um, the ruling party or the party that won the war making the rules and she doesn't see that it's that big of an issue and everybody should just move on. So I think that was important. I think it's important to talk about that in the context of Labour losing their equalities minister while they're in the middle of a furore with regards to transgender rights with, dealt with in their own party and the issue with how it's being dealt with in the best investigations team and also the crumbling of um, Kemi Badenoch as equalities minister. Whether she stays in her post is very much an embattled position. And I think at this moment in time now, Labour hasn't got anybody to even rebut what's going on with Kemi Badenoch because they've got nobody in that post and they've got no leg to stand on. And recently they um, themselves have been under attack with regards to how they're dealing with transgender rights by Liz Truss. She was talking, she talked about how Labour have failed them. So I think it's really interesting though we don't know why um, Marsha has left. Labour has left going into conference, going into the new season of parliament without an equalities minister under this dark cloud about wondering what is going on within that post in Labour that they are leaving. And Marsha has spoken up a few times about how Labour is dealing with racial inequality within its ranks. Well, I have an update for you because she has been replaced. She's been replaced by the former shadow chancellor who nobody knew who she was, Annalise Dodds. Um, she's now she's the- She's not Annalise Dodds. Who was, she was foreign and um, she was financed. She was the, yeah, she was Starmer's first shadow chancellor. Like She was the mm. shadow chancellor for the first year that he was leader and nobody even realised when she left because nobody knew no, she was in job. They did re well, I realised because she's actually an economist. Okay, the only people that realised are people who, okay, most normal people didn't know. That's my point. True. Well, like, I think, but that's like, let's take... good. <clears throat> no, because no, everybody no. knows who Rishi Sunak is and because it feels like he's about to be the next prime minister. Yeah. Do you want your... Um, do you want your foreign? You don't want your foreign secretary, and you don't want your um, cap, uh, your um, shadow, uh, your shadow chancellor. You don't want you don't want your foreign secretary. You don't want your shadow chancellor. 
overshadowing you because it looks like they're coming for your job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so don't mean it don't mean that was actually lucky. No, but here's a great here's a great example and a great labor example, a great recent labor example. Jeremy Corbyn wasn't um, you know, intimidated by John McDonnell. Everybody knew that John McDonnell was right. Well, everybody knew that John McDonnell was was the shadow chancellor, and that wasn't a threat. Like so a position like that, everybody should know who that is. It's like, like a fun, personable guy. Well, that's because he's northern. But as I said, because we're the best. Okay, well, but anyway, well, that aside, also fun and personable. Like, he's very boring. But anyway, anyways, we're getting, you, we're moving very off time, off, off piece. The point is, <laughs> the point is, Annalise Dodds is now the shadow. Um, this is what I mean. <laughs> shadow minister. She's now the shadow minister. Um, I mean, like at the end of the day, like it's just so. I was looking. I went on Labour's website. Telling that is, but that for me, sorry, just to cut went, you, but that's even telling about the thoughts, the thought, that process that is going into Equalities Minister in the Labour Party. Because where does Annalise Dodds fit in with regards to equalities? Is it the fact that she's a woman? I mean, she's. Or is like, it the fact that they felt that the way that they dealt with her taking her out of Shadow Chancellor role was a little bit. You know, not underhanded. I would say Buki is. A of course, it was. She, the woman is yeah. like she's, so she's is, got a PhD a in eco- prize. She's got a PhD in economics. Like, if you're trying to present yourself as a party who who are fiscally responsible, she should have been. She should. Ex- she should have been the person who you kept as your shallow chancellor. Yeah, like, what the hell are you putting her in? It's only because that's probably the only person that he had the power to move. If we're being honest, uh, uh. but you know that's. In the party machinations that we're not here to talk about today. So now Uncle David Lammy is the only black face left on the Labour front benches. Indeed. And, and um, that is all I will say on that. Yes. <laughs> so Corey has taken on the absolutely gargantuan task of reading Keir Starmer's speech, plan, vision for what he sees for the Labour Party. His 12,000 word manifesto, thesis, dissertation, presentation to the world of his inner workings and his thoughts, his political leanings, his vision for the future, for a Labour-led All right, relax. You're not on stage at the Globe. (laughs) Oh, am I not? His 32-page dossier. All right, yeah. Give us a rundown. I mean, first of all, I need the media to stop referring to it as an essay. All right? An essay... (laughs) It's 500 pages. An essay <laughs> is a long piece in The Economist. An essay is not 500 pages. That's too many pages. 500 words, sorry. 500, 500 words. 1,000 words, yeah. words. 1,500. 2,000 maybe. Long form That was not an essay. Anything more than that, yeah. That was not an essay. What I read, 45 minutes, I will never get back of my time, <laughs> was 14,000 words of faff. <laughs> faff. It was faff. No, really, it was faff. So what, obviously, not obviously, but what, of course, I'm talking about is this new pamphlet that Keir Starmer has written, it was published on uh, by the Fabian Society. Um, it's supposed to be sort of a preamble to his big speech at the Labour Party conference this week, you know, setting out his store, setting out his vision. This is going to be new, new Labour. This is what we're going to be fighting on at the next election. This is what the next Labour government would do. So I went into this trying not to be cynical. I was like, look, this is 32 pages. It's 14,000 words, whatever. It's 32 pages, right? Yeah, it might start off with a bit of preamble faff, but then he's going to get into detail, specifics. He's going to tell us exactly what he's about, what he's going to do. He's going to give us numbers, facts, figures, what will happen in year one, year two, year three, year four, what will happen in the second term. I was, I was, I was, I was giving it the benefit of the doubt. I really wanted to, okay? Really did want to. 
I've got him. I'm looking at my notes here and I've got, I wrote the words, is it coming? Question mark. Because I'm, I'm, I'm reading it. I'm reading it. I'm like, okay, so are we going to get somewhere soon? And we didn't. We didn't get anywhere. Didn't get anywhere. Just didn't get anywhere. So essentially he set it out in five different parts. The first part was like a two-page reflection. You know, this is my life type thing. Okay, cool, whatever. And then the second part was the past where he's talking about all of the great labor gains of the past, 1945, 1960s, oh. 1997. You've all read a book or not, and no one cares. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, it, yeah. Uh, and then the next section was, um, God, what is it? The past. Yeah, the present. So he's kind of talking about the last 10 years of Conservative Party government. Um, and then he's, then the next section was the future. And then the next, the fifth one was like two pages of, these are my 10 principles. I mean, like, so oh, you're joking me. Oh, no, no, he did. Yeah. So at the start of it, so that's start, what he spent all that time talking about. And he only talked about his vision and for the future in yeah, the so, last few pages. Uh, I, no. Okay. So the future okay, was kind of framework. split. The future was kind of split. The part four was the future where he listed some areas and stuff. And then the last part was like just two pages with his 10 principles. So we started off this pamphlet basically saying, you know what, he's going to tell us what he's going to do, what it's going to be about. And then he, he, he mentioned this thing about how he's going to have 10 principles. So immediately my mind went to uh, the Ed, what was it? The Ed Stone, was that what they called it? When Ed Miliband um, had like, almost like the, the media took the make out of him when he was running, the giant, uh, the, the what giant, election was it? I don't know, Gravestone? Yeah, yeah, it was like was the elections in 2010. Tombstone. No, 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 no. Um, oh, Ten Commandments, tablets. The, yeah, Ten yeah, Commandments, yeah. tablets. So his Rosetta Stone. He, that was it. Where he had like, you know, the 10 principles of what label we're going to do. And I was thinking, oh no, it's going to be another one of them. I, and then I, I, but then I finished reading this thinking, I wish it was that. I, w I started thinking, oh, please don't be another 10 point plan from Ed Miliband, like Ed Miliband did 10 years ago. And I ended thinking, please, I wish you had done that because it was just so vague. Now I'm not going to run through it. As I said, it was long. It was long. I'll just pick out a couple of points to show you why I was I mean, so when your opinions are often, you know, done by focus group, they're not, they are going to be vague, aren't they? Because they're trying to appeal to everybody, which I understand are trying mm. to appeal to everybody, but in appealing to everybody, you're appealing to no one. So all church of ideas, which think, is what? Red Leicester? Mild <laughs> cheddar? Sometimes people want Wensley Dale. What what but what what vexed me the most about this was he kept he kept referring going back to how the Tories were short-term-ish, they had no plan, you know, they have no vision, this, that, and the third. And I'm thinking, okay, cool, cool, cool. You keep telling us that the Tories have no plan, you keep telling us, you know, that there's short-termism. He must have used the short-termism word about five times through it. He kept you know, kept kept telling us these things. I'm like, okay, cool. But then that's what he did. Short he basically, is. yeah. So so the, as I said, the the um, those ten principles that he ended the document on, right? All ten of them could have been written by Boris Johnson, apart from one of them. <laughs> one of them said, um, one of them was the economy should work for citizens and communities. It is not good enough to just surrender to market forces. I don't see a conservative right in that. Yeah. However, everything else basically could have just been something that you've heard from David Cameron, from Theresa May. I do think it's important to point out as well, though, that when mm -hmm. Keir Starmer ran for leader of the party, yeah. he had his 10 points and commandments that he was going to work with. And yet here we are just a year and a bit later, he's got 10 new ones because for some reason, 
Listen, if it was a if it was a two page pamphlet, that w- it would have been fine. What he actually wrote, all of these these ten points, they're fine. They're they're just generic milk toast. They're things that everybody likes. You know, we will always put hardworking families and their priorities first. Who's going to say no to that? Um, what was the other? There was another one. Your chances in life should not be defined by the circumstances of your birth. Hard work oh, and how wow. you contribute should matter. Hey, hey, everybody can agree to that. That's cool. Yeah, and if it's no if it's if that. it's a two page A five sheet, yeah, cool. But you've gone thirty five pages, and all you've really told me specifics about what you're gonna do is you're going to sign. He said he's going to sign into law a new deal. I'm like, mate, you're not the American president, anyway. And also well, another a, a green new deal. No, 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 just a new, new deal. deal. Just a new deal. Rough, oh, rough. So not even specific. It's kind of economics, jobs, stuff. Anyway, and the other one was um, a, a race equality, a new race equality act, um, no and and something, and there was a third thing. Uh, the third thing, Literally, those were the only spe- like actual specifics of what I'm going to do. So he said. So there was one part in this whole future side of it where, as I said, the second to last section was him sort of saying these are all the grand things we're going to do. But here's an example of why I found it. I found it so frustrating. So I picked one as an example. And th- this section, it's the heading was best start to life section. So, you know, talking about, you know, life chances and all that kind of thing. So he says, fewer than half of British employers believe young people are leaving full-time education with sufficient advanced digital skills. Cool. So now I'm expecting him to tell me what he, specific policy, what specific thing he's going to do with his education secretary in schools like what are you going to make compulsory care are you going to uh, make sure that everybody has to do a gcs up to gcse in coding or are you going to yeah excellent idea i'm here so this is an example this is an example of what i'm trying to say he said something that makes sense yeah cool half employers are saying kids don't have the right skills nice okay cool what are you going to do because you've given me 32 pages i'm expecting you to give me something about what you're going to do and nada he said there was another bit in that he says um, I want every child to leave school ready for work and ready for life. Gr- and I literally wrote, great. But how, bro? Means what? How, yeah. how, how, how? Another section he put, one of the key drivers of people choosing to send their child to independent schools is the smaller classes. Great. So what's your target? Like, give us something. Are you, okay, that's great. That's cool. You're talking about class sizes. So then tell me, no uh, we're going we're gonna to plan that. No class size is going to be more than 25 or no class. What? Just give us something specific. And I didn't get anything from that. So you made me read that. 45 minutes of my life, I'm not going to get back. I'm owed reparations for that. And I hope you will be doing something to to to... Give me back my time. So I am expecting some kind of meal or I'll something. Next, next time I'm next, in London, you need to cook for me. You need to <laughs> buy me a ticket or just Give buy me a ticket. And, buy me a ticket and send me somewhere. I need some sort of payment for that because I, it was painful. When, when Boris releases his 12,000 word speech, I will read it. Nobody's interested in what he has to say, is it? except for someone that groups like the Young Fabians. It's not that he doesn't have um, a message. It's not that his message isn't, like you say, particularly middle of the road or appealing. It's just that he's just not interesting. He has he doesn't inspire anyone. People who are in, quote unquote inspired by him are labor labor supporters who are you know not even anti Corbyn. Just feel like you know the the hard left or quote unquote the left left isn't going to win elections, and they think it's more important to win elections. They're more anti Tory than they are pro labor. But it's they're like, right. No, like who's in? Who's but inspired? They're right. But they're right. They just have the wrong every, face. 
I'm giving my opinion. You think that they're, you can think that they're right. I don't agree with that. That's fine. Everybody's, everybody has their own part of the political spectrum. That's absolutely fine. But even those people who believe that it's more important for Labour to win elections and be electable rather than have any conviction or anything that they actually stand for, those are the only people that support him. And they don't support him because he's Keir Starmer. They support him because he's a middle of the road, milquetoast person for which you can project your ideas onto. But he's not even interesting enough to maintain that projection. But when I say he's right, what I'm saying is I'm not saying like, I'm not saying he's right because that's the right thing to do. I'm talking purely from a pragmatic perspective. Middle of the road, that's where the country is. And I'm sorry, I'm sorry. If the country's, if the country's middle of, of the road. The heart, folks of no, you on the left but, need to realise that. But you can say that. But my point is, if you think the, if you think the country is middle of the road, then they wouldn't have elected Boris Johnson because Boris Johnson is not middle of the road. But, what I'm, but this goes back to what I was saying to you before that this country is a right-wing the, country no, no, it's fine yeah, yeah. to say that no 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 that goes back to what i was saying in the sense that boris johnson the conservatives of the past 10 years they've taken the centrist language they might have they might they might mean other things by it they might implement other policies when they use the language but they still use that language and it's the but language they continue which appeals to implement to the other policies which people see and recognize as right wing and vote for them anyway but then they're right, a right wing country like, yeah but yeah but the average person isn't going that deep into politics they're hearing the top line the superficial i don't mean that in a negative way because that's how we that's how we that's how we generally um, I don't think people are digest news. I'm not saying people are stupid. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that. I'm saying most people don't have the time because they're too busy doing life to be flipping that, you know, analyzing what the real implications of the political machinations are. We've just I'm sat, simply we've, saying we're sat, that we've sat here, here and watched the Conservative Party transfer wealth, billions of pounds of wealth from the country to their Tory donors quite openly and take 20 pounds away from people who are struggling you majority of them who are in work on benefits we have watched them do that that is not a middle of the road action it's a very specifically right-wing action everyone can see that it's front page news every day people can continually vote for them it's so it's okay to accept that this is just a right-wing country and so any, anything left-wing anything left-wing is an uphill battle the conservative party have been in charge of this country 90 percent of the time since we have had a, a parliament this is a right-wing country they are not middle of the road it is right-wing sometimes the left wins to bring them back a little they've gone a little bit too far right and that's about it that's okay to say i don't think we need to pretend and call people centrists they're not centrists you're right I'm wing, not, it's fine. It's saying the centrist. I'm not all I'm saying is I'm not saying I'll leave it here. I'm not saying that the Tory party are centrist. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is they have successfully co-opted this centrist language that Keir Starmer now wants to use for his own purposes, but it's too late because they've co-opted that language. They might, they might then um push it, they might um do different things with it, but they co-opted the language, is all I'm saying. So what he's saying is all nice. But it's too late because somebody else has already got that language and he doesn't have the force he doesn't have the personality to be able to almost like re reconquer that language and then uh use it as his own and for his own policies that's all i'm saying i'm just saying that they've taken the language i'm not saying that they're necessarily doing what they say on the tin but they've successfully taken the language and made themselves appear a certain way that's all i'm saying for our final domestic story of the week, you're going to be telling us about this new alliance between the United States, Australia and the UK, also known as AUKUS. Is that how you pronounce it? AUKUS? AUKUS? 
I wouldn't know, but you're having too much fun. So let's move on. Yes, it's a trilateral security agreement between Australia, the United Kingdom and the United States, as you've said previously, where they're going to be sharing and um, drawing up a joint plan for the new Australian nuclear powered submarine fleet, which is going to be built in Australia. Um, they're going to be, there's basically a lot of disputes going on in the waters over there in the South China Sea, but also just in terms of, I think, trying to project some sort of Western military might. They've called themselves um, natural allies, even though they are not close to each other geographically. It's very much quite a large jump in between all the countries, really. So it's quite, a, but you know, it's a good surface area that they're gonna be covering with all these submarines. They're gonna need a few to cover the square footage of their interests. But it's not been said out aloud, but I think it's really just an attempt to try and combat the rise of China as a world power to try and take it to them militarily, even though the United States military spend and size alone, and I think almost quadruples China's anyway, let alone compared to our two islands poultry offerings. So this idea that, you know, if they just increase themselves militarily, that's where they're going to be stepping to China, where they need to be stepping to China, which they're not going to do is economically and economically um, investing, supporting, or if we're being honest, strong arming in a lot of these other countries, they're just not financially able to meet, um, to meet the demands that China is able to in terms of manufacture um, and shipping. Like for instance, all the effects that we've had, the issues that we've had with supply chains over COVID, that is because of lockdowns in China and affects the supply chain in China, because that's where a lot of the global um, supply chain is placed. So this idea that they can solve, you know, Chinese hegemony and Chinese growth and dominance on the world stage by you know, a few nuclear submarines is, you know, good luck to them. I don't think it's going to work. Invest in building roads in countries that is not just, you know, financial aid or um you know, um, soft, soft power. They're, they're investing in soft power that actually feels like people are getting bang for their buck, not soft power building prisons in Jamaica. That's my thoughts on it anyway. Yeah, I mean, I guess, yeah, definitely like Britain and Australia don't have that kind of money to be like, you know, just using, you know, billions here and billions there in different countries, you know, in terms of soft power. But I think America still has that ability. The problem, yeah, the, the issue is, the re there's, there's two reasons why America are not going down that track which is sort of turning turn, in many ways they're, they're turning their back in many ways of the sort of post-war settlement what they've been doing for the past 70 years in different countries and for two reasons number one like biden for all the talk about how biden is like the opposite of trump or whatever they they do share they, they do share um or they seem to be shared more and more as biden as presidency goes on you're seeing more of a similar kind of sort of um step stepping back america kind of stepping back from taking this big leadership role in the world um and the second reason that it's not going to happen is that the, uh, politically doesn't the political capital isn't there in it's america not there for any of them i don't think yeah domestically their infrastructure and china is doesn't in the need toilet political capital yeah so. right and, exactly and again they've got a younger population chinese people are having children whereas you know western populations they are on their knees begging us to continue to breed a workforce and nobody's interested in doing it, the cost of living. I China's know. got, um, no one asked you. China's got, you know, ghost cities that they're able to start filling up. 
they've got a captive workforce who are there by you don't know, you know don't have a cho the choice to leave essentially and they're growing and they're able to continually grow in a way that we just don't we can't this we can't compete on a not even on a money game on a numbers game in terms of longevity we just this we don't have the same power these mm. countries don't have the same power that china's definitely got and also even though we're not you know it's not about even democracy is china has the political will because they are in control from ruta to tuta whereas these other countries have got to deal with their internal party machinations and opposition parties and who you've got to pay off here and who you've got to pay off there. And at the end of the day, China doesn't have to pay off any, I mean, maybe they do, I don't know, but I don't think in terms of the CCP, they don't have to be to pay off anybody. Yeah, but it was one party state. So yeah, you've yeah. got to worry about opposition. <laughs> other people are worried about paying off them. Oh, our first across the pond story of the new season, the newly minted season, you're going to be telling us about the issues uh, on the southern border of America with uh, a lot of Haitian migrants trying to get across. Yes, yeah, so now we're moving down to the border at uh, Mexico and Texas, where there's been a significant number of Haitian migrants between 13 and 14,000. The numbers have been reported between Reuters and BBC between 13 and 14,000. And people, are, I think what's first is important is because I think we're all probably wondering, what are they doing there? So since the earthquake, um, Haitians have obviously left in quite significant numbers. And when they didn't necessarily go to America and other countries, they went to quite a few countries in South America. So um, Brazil, um, Panama and Chile, and where there's now, they were there in Brazil for the Olympics and where those countries' economies have now started to change and there's less work, they've started making their way up and they've been moving through um, Honduras, they've been moving through Colombia, which has been really um, quite dangerous for them. There have been reports of lots of dead bodies on the path through Colombia as well. And they've been quite specifically dangerous for women on the, the journey. And so they've all found them, themselves at the border because there has been a tacit um, and a rumor essentially that if they get there and go through the legal route at the border, they'll be able to enter. And what they've been faced with is border, border falls and border patrols on horses. And I think quite a few people have seen the videos already. And if you haven't, you can Google them if you want to have a look of them being essentially whipped back from the American border. And they're currently making and building refugee camps and shanty towns under bridges in, in Mexico in the in the border town in Mexico and what they're what we in fact it's important that brings up what you spoke about before about Biden is following quite a few of um, Trump's handbook and he's utilizing some previous Trump legislation the title 42 where they are which was brought in under COVID-19 protections where they're just flying um, asylum seekers or refugees straight back to their home countries under the guise of protection of um, COVID-19 the US, the Haitian envoy to the US has quit in what he's called inhumane um, deportations. They, uh, the White House press secretary has come out and said they're going to be removing any horsebacks. They're going to be, there's going to be no more patrols on horseback in order to combat the um, attacks on people at the border. Yeah. I think one thing to note is that this, you're mentioning that uh, a lot of these people who are trying to seek asylum, uh, well, who are trying to uh, migrate into America uh, was as a result of the earthquake. 
obviously the earthquake you're referring to is the earthquake in 2010. Uh, yes, yeah. there was a there there's was been another the most recent earthquake. there was a recent yeah. earthquake. Yes, yeah. so that's but also important are, to point yeah. out. There's been the 2010 earthquake, and then obviously mm-hmm. we talked about it on the podcast was the assassination of the um, president Jovenel Moise. Yeah, Moise, and 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 then there was also another earthquake. Yeah, this year. So there has been there have been a few waves of people, but a lot of the people that are coming now are people from the first wave of yeah. the um, of migration who have made their way up South America, essentially mm-hmm. looking for work. And I think it's actually really important because I was listening to one of my favorite podcasts, and um, one of wait, the, you're, you're uh, plugging other podcasts on our podcast. It was interesting, and it's what I listened to, and it talks about national national security podcast. It was talks about national security in America, and it was really interesting because what one of the speakers spoke about, he said, a lot of this stuff with regards to refugees and migrants is people are just looking for work, and he was like, the quickest and easiest and best fix to this is short term work visas where people can come in and work for six months, which is all that they want to do. They don't want to move to America. You essentially, by not allowing easy and simple short-term ways for people to work and earn money and go back home, you first force all these people to become citizens of the of your country because you're they want to be economic migrants. They want to come for six months, work, go home for six months and back and forth. Like a lot of people do here, especially in their older age, they go in summer or winter in Spain or further afield and come back in the summer and work a bit more, earn a bit more money and go back, or they just work, come in the, the summer and see their family. You're forcing people to become refugees. You're forcing people to be seeking long-term immigration solutions what is for what is essentially a short-term problem. Yeah. If once these places stabilize, once the economy picks up, most of these people want to go back home. They do not want to be permanent residents. So it's a but there is not like again there's not much political capital that a lot of these countries have to work with and they're not willing to expend it on essentially angering um one unions and also right-wing parties that see you know any sort of migration whether it's long or short term as an a long-term effect on the social and uh demographics yeah yeah the the social and racial demographics of the country Uh. I think with well, it's interesting what you said. I haven't, I haven't I haven't heard any arguments. I haven't heard an argument for that angle where peace, people people sort of arguing for people to be let in on a temporary basis, like on a sort of revolving basis. But it is interesting that that argument is out there because there are so many unfilled job vacancies at the moment in America. Like they have record unfilled vacancies at the moment. You know, after the pandemic, post pandemic, the oh, the economy's home. the economy's bounced back. Um, but the economy is bouncing back faster than they can fill jobs. So that would make even more sense in the current climate because the jobs are there to be filled. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at NotBamePod. That's N-O-T-B-A-M-E pod. If you've got a comment or a suggestion for a future show, email us, notbamepod at gmail.com. And if you're listening on iTunes, give us five stars. 